Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Ahoy. I'm Justin Bird, joined tonight by Dr. Chris, the Chew Man Chew, and two wonderful producers, Dr. Brian Ward and Dr. Ryan Hansen. Brian, Ryan, say hi. Hello. Hi, everybody. It is great having you both. What a great episode. You did tremendous work with our fantastic guest tonight, Dr. Buddy Creech. He is here to discuss ticks. I was going to try to think of a TikTok uh, pun real quick, but instead I'm going to turn it over to Chris so that he can remind us about the show. We are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge, and answer lingering questions about core topics in pediatric medicine. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Creech. Buddy Creech is a professor of pediatric infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee. He works primarily as a translational investigator, evaluating new vaccines and therapeutics and seeking to decipher the human immune response to infection. Dr. Creech teaches us the core signs and symptoms of tick-borne illnesses, the importance of geographic variation in making the diagnosis, and not just the what, but why we see lab abnormalities in ehrlichiosis. I think our audience is going to think that we really hit the bullseye with this episode. Oh, come on, friends. We can't, we can't waste time. The clock is ticking. Yeah, both pretty good, guys. Okay. Dr. Buddy Creech, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Welcome to the Cribsiders. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We are, uh, because we're an informal group and because we're already friends, is it okay if we call you by your first name, Buddy? Uh, I was going to say that or sir, but buddy is fine. Yeah. Buddy, sir, pal. You, yeah. Chris, you can call anything throughout the show. That's That's uh, perfect. I respond Uh, to every word. Feel free to get creative. (laughs) Um, we're excited to have you. Our audience is excited to have you. They would love to get to know you a little bit. Do you mind giving us just a little bit of a one-liner about yourself and maybe something that you do outside of medicine? Yeah. So I'm a pediatrician uh, by training. I do pediatric infectious diseases at Vanderbilt University Medical Center here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, We're in Music City, USA. So I love to play drums. I play timpani for our church. I play in a band called the Soapy Mohawks because we all have kids and we know how to make mohawks out of soap. Um, And so that's uh, we can play the stink out of some credence. and, And that's what we do. What a great pediatrician band name. Absolutely. Right? You got to know your audience. So <laughs> well, shotgun weddings and uh, backyard parties. That's our that's beautiful. our niche. Yeah. And bar mitzvahs, presumably. That's for always. Yeah. Always. <laughs> so my question is going to go with, is there anything in popular culture that you would recommend to our audience? Any books, shows or mm. music albums that's not Taylor oh. Swift? That's fantastic. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take uh, a privilege here and say two. One is I'm rewatching West Wing for like the Ooh, ninth time. So good. And if there are folks that haven't watched it, that's, you're just missing out. It's so fantastic, especially the first four seasons. Um, second thing I would say is I'm really loving Smartless. We're now like three years into this podcast, uh, and I cannot highlight it enough because it's super fun. So, yeah. I West Wing is like a favorite. I too have watched multiple times. It's also become like my comfort show to the point where if I'm stressed, I'll watch it. And so when my wife comes home and I'm watching the West Wing, she's like, 
what happened? Are you okay? Let's all awesome. talk. Yeah. I mean, the Aaron Sorkin uh, walk and talks are just always phenomenal. I mean, I, I love the West Wing. Great show. Let's dive into some content. Brian, you want to get us started and uh, introduce our first case? Yeah, I'd love to do it. Let's start with a case from Cashlack Clinic. Your first case is a young man named Rick. He's a previously healthy nine-year-old boy who presents to the clinic with three days of fever and malaise. He's been outside playing with his friends pretty frequently, but really doesn't have any sick contacts. He complains of feeling lousy, sore arms and legs, and occasional headache for which he takes Tylenol with moderate relief. So our differential here is is probably pretty broad, includes things like viral diseases, but I want some insight into what your first differential is, but also what pushes you towards some of the more strange things and what gets an infectious disease consult? Yeah, those are great questions. Um, and I think it's challenging because it's totally dependent on the comfort level of the provider in terms of that last question, right? What gets a, an ID consult? I mean, let's be fair. I mean, anything can. Um, we're here to help. We're here to come alongside and try to think about common things being common. And we also are there to think about unusual things, whether that's related to travel or exposures. Maybe I'll tell you how I approach these, both from a primary standpoint and in the emergency department where I worked for many years. The, the idea here is that if there's something unusual about it that you can kind of sink your teeth into, that makes it really easy, right? So um, someone who's febrile and sick and literally no one else around them is sick, that's a clue that maybe this isn't a hyper contagious respiratory virus or enterovirus like we see in the summer, respiratory viruses in the winter. If they don't have respiratory symptoms, that's a little bit of a flag for us to think about things that aren't the typical respiratory viruses of influenza and paraflu. The enteroviruses can certainly cause respiratory symptoms despite their name. The, the presence or absence of a rash, the absence or presence of joint aches, all of these are little clues that might give you a sense that this isn't just your normal everyday respiratory virus or upper respiratory disease like sinusitis, otitis, pharyngitis, and things like that. So when we see these kids, we are driven by what's their exposure history? Are other people sick? Do they have any respiratory symptoms whatsoever? And have they been exposed to not just their own flora, not just to germs they might inhale or interact with in other people, but have they encountered any kind of exposure to a mosquito or a tick or other vector-borne illnesses that, that might send us in a different direction? I'm just putting this out there. Now, you know, there have been times when I know friends who are on inpatient medicine or inpatient peds. And, you know, they have these patients that have, you know, sort of just like our similar presentation here, like, you know, a couple of different signs and symptoms, not really, we don't know what's going on. And um, I've, I've known them to consult ID to get, uh, because they get a better history. Um, Fantastic. What, you, you gave us a, a couple of things that you as that ID consultant look at. Are there any other specific things, especially knowing the topic that we're talking about today? What are, what are some things that zero you in on what we're talking about today? Yeah. So for every, I, I will give you the tricks of the trade. Um, here's what you get um, for a moderate complexity consult from ID. We take a social history that is plates, P-L-A-T-E-S. P is for pets. Do they have dogs, cats, any other pets at home? Because some are vectors, some are not. One of my favorite cases was a kid with a diffuse rash and arthralgia who, when we asked about pets, she talked about her pet rat Oreo and how he liked to sneeze in her face and she had rat bite fever. 
this is a fantastic diagnosis that's completely dependent on, you know, having a rat. L is lifestyle. You know, are they an inside person? Are they an outside person? Do they play Xbox primarily or are they out camping? Are they in the woods? Are they outside more often than not? A is appetite. What do they eat? Are they eating dirt? Are they eating unpasteurized milk or other food stuff that's weird? Do they eat imported foods that might bring new risks? What's their travel history? I don't care about just the exotic places. I want to know what areas they've been to that might bring with it those diseases that are geographically limited, whether that's in um, the Northeast or the Southeast or out West or wherever it might be. E is exposures. And these are, these are a, a variable uh, kind, of, uh, kind of group, right? These are exposures like, is anybody else sick? Are there known exposures to other communicable diseases? And then S is sexual history. We, we always want to ask about um, exposures that may be limited by their transmission to a sexual route. So I think if you take a systematic approach to that, all of a sudden you start to narrow in on what you need to focus on for either lab interrogations or your physical exam. I, I love that so much. I feel like a lot of times we know that in a comprehensive history, we don't need to ask every patient about, you know, if they have a turtle, but sometimes we do then switch into like, oh, something is going on here. I need a more extensive history. And then it's kind of like a blank, like, wait, how, what is that? What? And so this is, I love that, that mnemonic. Well, we talk a lot of times about the positive attending sign, right? The attending walks in and takes a history or gets a history that no one else said. And part of the reason for that is that sometimes as attendings, we don't have to worry about all the other fact finding because that's not our primary job. We're asking typically very systematically something like I just described. So I think being systematic when you need to go to that next level I think that can be extremely helpful so you don't forget things in a busy clinic, a busy outpatient center, or a busy emergency department. I love that. One of the core questions that I have as a history is that I think we all have had a handful of some of the tick-borne illnesses. It's the episode, um, and maybe excluding Lyme disease, but you know, of anaplasmosis or lichiosis, some of these common tick-borne illnesses. But there always have been, at least for me, in the inpatient setting, you know, they have some abnormalities. Is this because the classic presentation of a tick-borne illness is someone who is pretty sick and has a higher severity, or that there's probably a handful of outpatient or lithiosis cases that have come through my clinic that I said was a viral syndrome that got better. Is there a sense like, are most tick-borne illnesses pretty severe or does it kind of cover the full spectrum? Yeah, I think this is a really important fact. If you look at seropositivity data, so these would be studies where people go in and ask questions of, let's take leftover samples of blood from kids that come into the emergency department or whatever, and let's just see if they have antibodies to rickettsia or to ehrlichia, right? This would be asking the question, how frequent are undiagnosed infections? Because the number we diagnose isn't very high. It turns out, depending on where you are in the Southeast, anywhere from like 10 to 25% of kids will have antibody titers that are above a cutoff for these particular pathogens. And I think that's really telling because what that tells us is that the majority maybe of these infections that we see are actually either subclinical or hyposymptomatic or posse-symptomatic where they're coming in with fever and headache, maybe a flu-like illness. It's thought to be a viral infection and then they just recover on their own. It's really only the ones that are severely ill that we go to the trouble of trying to get an Ehrlichia PCR or RMSF antibodies and Ehrlichia antibodies that we actually confirm the diagnosis. We have a saying here in Nashville because we're part of what we affectionately know uh, known as the tick belt. We have a saying that when a kid comes into the emergency department in the summer with fever, 
and arthralgia and myalgia and headache, especially if they have photophobia and especially if they have some lab abnormalities that we can think about, um, they have ADD. They have acute doxycycline deficiency until proven otherwise. And there is no way to prove otherwise. So we prescribe a lot of doxycycline in the summertime because of that issue of of this posse symptomatic state and not all cases end up in the ICU. So one question I have is we've we've talked, you said it a couple of times as you're, as we're talking about some of the presentation symptoms is the rash. Can you talk a little bit about the rash? What type of rash we might see, how often it's seen because you just, the, the ED finding you just talked to us about you didn't say anything about a rash. How often do we see a rash in this case? And especially, uh, as far as I know, you know, sometimes um, Lyme disease, there's a time delay, right? So maybe they had a rash and parents never noticed or the kid never said anything. Like how often does that happen as well? Yeah, these are great questions. So um, let's talk about them in turn. So uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever has the most classic rash. This is the one where you get these small typically flat macules, which I guess is redundant. They're macules that are on the wrists and on the ankles. They can become petechial. Um, They're often on the palms and the soles of the feet. So it's a rash that begins on the extremities and then can spread centrally over a few days. And usually that's happening around the time of infection, maybe a day or two after the onset of fever. But that's happening sort of simultaneous with the illness. Ehrlichiosis is really age dependent. Some people used to call it Rocky Mountain spot less fever because the the rash was less common. But here's the difference between kids and adults. Kids, rash is present in about 80%. Adults, not as much. So you've really got to know your audience in terms of who you're treating. And then Lyme disease, yeah. Lyme disease has this classic erythema migrans that starts around the area of the tick bite. It can go away. And then you have these symptoms of early localized disease where you have some fever and some arthralgia and some myalgia and a flu-like illness, and that's still an important time to treat. So it really depends on the vector and the tick. Um, It really depends on the organism itself, um, and it depends on where in the stage of the illness they are. In general, I'm never going to withhold treatment because they lack a rash. That makes a lot of sense. And I think, you know, in taking a step back, we kind of talked about the different types of tick-borne illnesses, whether it's... Lyme, anaplasmosis, or like babesiosis, uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Um, when you're as an ID physician, when are you starting to go down the pathway of, of tick-borne illnesses? We're getting to that a little bit. I wonder if there's any other vital signs, labs, or presentations. But also, in my mind, I think often of tick-borne illnesses as a clump. And then when we're kind of in that module, I start trying to think about the differentials between them. Is that how you're kind of approaching this or not necessarily? It's like, no. oh, this rash is consistent. And so can you maybe talk out when we should be thinking about tick-borne illnesses either as a group or should we really be thinking about each one individually? And how the hell do we tell the difference between like anaplasmosis and ehrlichiosis in a, a clinical presentation? Yeah, you don't have to. I think I want to take the right. pressure off folks and say, you know what? The question you've got to ask is, does this patient need doxycycline or no? And you want to be a good steward, but let's be clear. We know that if you fail to start doxycycline within the first four days or so for something like Rocky Mountain spotted fever, the risk of severe morbidity and mortality increases considerably. So four days is our window. It's not as set in stone as like, 10 days for Kawasaki disease or a week or 10 days for group A strep for rheumatic fever prevention. But that's what we need to think about is we know that mortality goes up after four days. So I think we need to take the pressure off people and say, at some level, it doesn't matter. 
do you need doxycycline or not? So I will tell you that any, let's go from severe to easy. So severe cases, if someone comes into the ICU with sepsis physiology in the summertime, who's previously healthy and does not have a specific localizing infection, their regimen for us in the Southeast is usually vanc, ceftriaxone, and doxycycline. And that triple therapy allows us to cover all of the things that are most likely in the general community onset sepsis. So that's number one. That's easy though, right? That's the ICU where stewardship be damned. You're just going to give the drugs you need to save a kid's life. All right. So what's below that? So the kid that's hospitalized with fever and hypotension with maybe some lab abnormalities that point towards uh, a tick-borne illness like lymphopenia, hyponatremia, thrombocytopenia, elevated liver enzymes. When those are without explanation, again, that falls into the acute doxycycline deficiency for us in the Southeast, the Mid-Atlantic, certainly Florida and Texas, the sort of the Southern aspect of the Midwest. Keep in mind that Ehrlichia, 90% of cases occur in Oklahoma, Missouri, Tennessee, and uh, Arkansas. So th that's where the bulk of Ehrlichia is. Uh, and that's how you can remember where exposures need to have occurred for the majority of cases. All right. So then the step below that would be the kid or the young adult who presents with fever, headache, photophobia is a really not specific, but boy, it's a, it's a telltale sign that there is um, a potential for a, a tick-borne illness. So in the outpatient center, in the clinic, in the office setting, if we've got a kid in the summer who has no respiratory symptoms, has no one around, else, no one around him that's sick, if there is reasonable exposure, who has fever, photophobia, headache, and no other symptoms, that's a kid that we need to follow very carefully and who may need outpatient therapy with doxycycline if that doesn't resolve over a couple of days. I know that feels vague and unsettling, but I think that's what we have to do. For, forgive me for one last statement before, before I stop on this one. We have no reliable way to test people in to therapy with doxycycline. We have no way to test people out for doxycycline. It all has to be a clinical diagnosis. And I think the best thing we can do is risk a little bit of over therapy in the right geographic region, in the right time of the year with the right symptom complex than trying to use the typical diagnostic tests we would use. Can I ask you to follow up on that? Because, you know, clearly inpatient, there are some tests that we've seen that it would be good to talk about, but, you know, that pops up red and says this is anaplasmosis or, you know, sure. there's some specific findings um, on blood smear that are consistent with those. And it sounds like you would start doxycycline based on that clinical presentation while waiting for that result, even if that's necessary. Is that... Uh, I think you or, have to. Or would you be winning? Yeah. I think you have to because so many of them are send out labs. Now, a lot of our institutions will do things like Ehrlichia PCRs in-house. Most of the times we're sending antibody testing out. And, and I would suggest that maybe I misspoke that a little bit earlier when I say that there is a way to include uh, the diagnosis of Ehrlichia, right? If you get a positive PCR, you've got Ehrlichia. Sure. But my goodness, I hope that we started doxycycline in advance of that result, right? And then the second piece of that is none of those tests are reliable enough in the acute setting to exclude the diagnosis of a tick-borne illness. The best we can do is try to repeat those in four to six weeks with convalescent titers and maybe confirm a diagnosis in a kid who's still sick or still having some issues. But at the end of the day, the decision to start doxycycline uh, or to give a course of doxycycline is a purely clinical decision.
So one question I have about doxycycline is, you know, I, I do like to participate in shared decision-making with the parents. And if the child is old enough or it's more of a young adult, adolescent, um, what are, so you talked about over, over treatment with doxycycline. I've heard this great story that Paul Sachs uh, talked about uh, tr- uh, using doxycycline once on a patient. And uh, later on, he, he didn't do a good job at explaining and they, and she ended up showing back up with pill esophagitis and he felt so bad about it. Like, what are some of the things we need to think about as we're doing education with parents, possibly the, the kids about, uh, about doxycycline? Yeah. So the first one is the one that finally got taken out of our AAP Red Book recently, which is we used to not prescribe it or, or we used to just, uh, prescribe it with a little bit of hesitancy in those less than eight because of the issue of tooth staining. And then it turns out that on review, there has not been a single event in which doxycycline stained the teeth. It is unique to tetracycline. Um, doxycycline has far less affinity for tooth enamel. And so discoloration is not an issue. So we don't need to enter into shared decision-making because of tooth staining. The real side effects of doxycycline, in my opinion, are two. One is the gastrointestinal side effects of of doxy. And that can either be in the form of pill esophagitis, which occurs with a lot of different antibiotics. So drink lots of water when you take a medicine. If you feel like it's stuck, drink a little bit more. But more prominent are the the GI distress that sometimes kids will get, especially with in the nausea with, with doxy. But the second one is the sun sensitivity that occurs with doxy. And we're typically prescribing this in the summertime. So I think what we've got to tell families is, look, for the next week to 10 days, take it easy in the sun. Your kid's not feeling great. That's a good thing. Keep them inside. Don't be in the sun for prolonged periods of time. Sunscreen is not going to completely ameliorate that risk. And so all of a sudden you've got this nine-year-old trying to play outside in a hundred degree weather with a hat, long sleeves and pants on. That's a non-starter. So sometimes we just have to walk parents through what the ramifications are of a week-long course of doxy. But for most of our tick-borne illnesses, with the exception of Lyme disease, we actually have rational treatment courses. It's you treat until they're better and then like a day or two, and then you're great. It's the most reasonable way to treat an infection that's ever been developed, as opposed to, uh, you know, uh, something that ends in a football score like seven or 14. So it's a really nice way to just prescribe what's good for them. And then like another day or two. I have one more quick question. Then Brian, I'm going to let you take it away for, for our next topic. But um, two of the things that you mentioned that I wanted to follow up on. One, you talked about, you know, if we don't get Dotsy cycling in, in that, you know, four day window, roughly the severity of morbidity or maybe even mortality increases. And maybe starting there, can you talk a little bit about what that morbidity and mortality is? And then second, I was going to see that to close up, there were two pearls that I've, I'm doing the, the shot, the double barrel question, I apologize. But the two other pearls that I remember from tick-borneness are things like, you know, looking for splenomegaly and what one other pearl of relative bradycardia can sometimes occur and be, are those real things that can present and is the splenomegaly, you know, one of the, the reason I'm thinking about it, one of the causes of the morbidity mortality? Yeah, uh, these are great questions. So I, I think as I consider some of the pearls around this, I'm really thinking about elevated liver enzymes as a marker for ehrlichiosis in children. About 90% of kids with ehrlichia will have elevated ALT. We think about the combination of hyponatremia with thrombocytopenia. There's not a lot that does that. Overwhelming dehydration with sepsis, sure, uh, but but that's a helpful. And, and I bring that one up, the, the hyponatremia and thrombocytopenia in particular, 
because I think that's pointing us towards the pathophysiology that's responsible for the morbidity and mortality. This is for rickettsial diseases, so RMSF and Ehrlichia, those are vasculitides. They cause a microvascular inflammation syndrome that probably leads to a bit of SIADH that leads to a local DIC. And that's really when we see problems from RMSF and Ehrlichia, it's usually because of refractory hypotension and a widespread vasculitis. All right. Um, staying on this theme, a couple of other pearls. I don't know why four days is the magic number, but in all the epi studies that have been done, that's really our, our crossing the bridge is after four days. The other one that we see is if a patient has been receiving Bactrim for any reason, Bactrim has an independent risk factor for ehrlichiosis severity. Interesting. And so whether that's, yeah, whether that's a UTI that was recently treated with Bactrim, whether that's Bactrim prophylaxis for something, patient I took care of was taking Bactrim for an SSTI, went on a camping trip, and I mean, the wheels came off. And so for reasons that may revolve around G6PD and some of the metabolic pathways associated with that, there's a, there's a link between trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole and ehrlichiosis severity. So just remember that. Great pearls. Love those. Let's jump back to our case for just one second. We've got Rick, who, as you remember, is this nine-year-old young man who comes in with fever and malaise. And we had left it real broad. Let's say it's summer in Albany, New York. How does this change your differential? Would you mind talking us through, I, I think we're on tick-borne pretty heavy now. So let's talk through Lyme disease and where does it show up? First off, yeah, this is really important because um, not all Lyme disease is Lyme disease, right? Of all of the diseases that we in infectious diseases try to deal with, Lyme is the most misunderstood by both providers and by patients. And so it's no wonder it's a spirochete, and spirochetes be crazy. Um, they do weird things. All we got to do is read the chapter on congenital syphilis. And our minds explode because it's so complicated. Um, Lyme disease is, is no different there. It causes weird antibodies to form. There's cross-reactivity in the testing. So the very first thing that I think about in those kids who are from, let's say, Albany, is that geographically, that's a different beast than the kid who's showing up from Arkansas or the kid that's in Southern California. Completely different epidemiology. So let's respect that epi, realize that ticks don't know where the state borders are, but there is a need for all the component parts of the life cycle, right? So what does Lyme disease need? Well, it needs exodes and it needs a deer and it needs a mouse. And if it doesn't have all three of those, that life cycle is not complete. And so in some areas you have the tick and the deer, but you don't have the mouse. In some areas you have the tick and the mouse, but not the deer. And as we have changes in our climate, the geographic distribution of Lyme is certainly going to change. But right now, think about Lyme as being the upper Midwest at the Canadian border, east towards the northeast, Lyme, Connecticut, and then south towards the Atlantic seaboard. But by the time you get to like North Carolina and the border to South Carolina, rates drop off considerably. Uh, again, I'm in Tennessee. We know what we know. We go out and, and have state health officials surveying ticks in the area. They take these nets and they drag them through brushy areas. And then they sample those ticks after chewing them up to see, hey, is there any Borrelia here? 
And the only Borrelia we find in this area is Borrelia lonestarii, which is the cause of Southern tick-associated rash illness. It looks like Lyme disease. Mm -hmm. It looks like the erythema migrans of Lyme disease, but it doesn't have any of the dissemination characteristics like carditis, lymphocytic meningitis, Bell's palsy, or arthritis that we see with Lyme disease. So the very first thing I would think of is in Albany, the likelihood of Ehrlichia and RMSF, a little bit lower. The likelihood of Lyme, a little bit higher. I'm not going to probably get excited about doxycycline just with fever and malaise. Maybe with some arthralgia, I'll get more excited if they pulled a tick off recently, but I'm going to need a little bit more in that in that situation. I think this is a great. Pro- I did training in Baltimore where I did not see a lot of Lyme and then moved to Providence, Rhode Island. And I learned tons from the residents who, you know, Lyme disease was a a, a Providence special. So it was a very uh, a fun opportunity to kind of learn from residents. I've learned more Lyme disease from a good colleague of mine who is a Boston-trained orthopedic surgeon um, <laughs> because he saw Lyme arthritis like they were a dime a dozen. And so we have to recognize that um, as we move out of the Southeast and the Midwest where Ehrlichia and RMSF are more common, and we move into the Northeast where, where Lyme and Babesiosis are a bit more common, We've got to be really careful to not lump all of those together because the fever, arthralgia, headache that would give me the diagnosis of acute doxycycline deficiency in the summertime in Nashville should not make us do that in Albany, New York. Lyme disease presents a bit differently than that. And then the other thing I would say is that we haven't talked in this case yet of, of a nine-year-old named Rick. And, and let's let's just say best nine-year-old name ever, um, you know, Rick is um, he hasn't pulled a tick off or you haven't told me anything about a tick. And I'll be honest, as an ID doc, um, there's always a tick and there's always a cat. And it doesn't matter what they say. There's always a cat. Look for Bartonella. There's always been a tick. And if you go into it with that assumption, you don't get so cognitively boxed in to say, well, they didn't pull a tick off. Doesn't matter. Most tick bites come, they feed, they leave, and you don't even know they were there. To piggyback on that, one question I get a lot as a primary care physician is I get, I get the mom call. We went hiking and I found a tick on my kid. I pulled it off right away. The kid needs to be treated. So what do we have to worry about with ticks? So it sounds like they feed, they go. I've heard some ED docs at some other talks say, no, it's got to be feeding for 48 to 72 hours. You got to see it. And then, but it sounds like, you know, a lot of other colleagues, especially my ID colleagues, they're like, well, Doxy is pretty easy to treat, especially when it comes to post-exposure prophylaxis. It seems easier just to treat it instead of worrying about it because it's not like anyone timed how long the tick was on, on the body. What are your thoughts on that? That's exactly right. Yeah. You're super weird if you know the exact minute a tick bit you and latched on and then you didn't remove it for 24 to 48 hours. Like That's not an ID consult. That's weird. So there are typically like five ways or five questions you ask to say, is this a high-risk tick bite that needs prophylaxis? So the first one would be like, where did it happen? Did it happen Virginia and north, and then Virginia and northwest up to like Minnesota? And if it's in that swath of the country, okay, yes, that's where Borrelia burgdorferi is at highest prevalence. The second would be, was it removed in the last 72 hours? I don't care about a tick bite that happened last June. I care about one that's happened in the last few days. The third was, was the tick engorged. That tick could feed slowly or quickly. 
it's a matter of whether or not the tick was big and juicy because it had taken a blood mill. The fourth one is that, you know, is there evidence that it was an exodes tick? Most people don't know. They take the tick off, they throw it away, who the crap knows? So that one isn't very helpful, but some people are common enough, like they, they get tick bites enough. They're like, yeah, this was a black-legged tick. I know it. And then the last one is, is it reasonable to use doxy? If they're pregnant, if they're allergic to it, if they're breastfeeding, you probably wouldn't do it. So if you ask those five questions, where was it? Is it recent? Was it engorged? Was it a black-legged tick? And is doxy safe? There are good studies that would suggest that you could use a single prophylactic dose of doxy in those patients to prevent Lyme disease. And and, and a single dose would either be 200 milligrams for adults or 4.4 mg per kilo for children if they're less than 45 kilos. So it's kind of a double dose. I think that's reasonable in high endemic areas. I absolutely would not do it in any areas outside of where we see Lyme disease. So let's say we have a patient that has a high-risk tick in the high-risk areas that was in George, but they did not receive this, this prophylactic dose. And actually, maybe maybe we won't make it even that easy. We, we don't know. They, they were camping, but they didn't see a tick. But I guess what I'm leaning towards is you're, you're suspicious for possible Lyme. They're presenting with some nonspecific fevers, some headache, but we're not sure yet. And it sounds like in these Northeast areas where Lyme is more prevalent, we have a higher threshold to pull the trigger on doxycycline. Um, and so let's talk about the confirmatory testing of diagnosis, because I feel like Lyme testing is actually one that is a little confusing if you haven't seen it before. And so can you talk about what in an uh, expert mind like yours is really this, this is a Lyme disease diagnosis. Let's, uh, let's pull the trigger and treat for Lyme disease. Well, I think it's really challenging because different labs test Lyme in different ways. So for years, we've had this two-tiered approach where we do something that's very, very sensitive, like an ELISA or the equivalent. And then once we see some positivity, because it's so sensitive, we're like, wow, it's positive, but who knows what that means? Maybe they have syphilis. Maybe they've got lupus. Maybe they're just a normal human being that has some cross-reactive antibodies. So then you confirm it with a Western blot where you're actually trying to figure out, okay, what bands that belong to Borrelia are popping up positive? So all testing historically has done that one-two combination. And if you're positive by ELISA, then you go or EIA, you go on to Western blot. The challenge is that we're now doing some different style of testing that sometimes can be confusing where the individual provider is not getting that level of detail. It's sort of censored behind the scenes. And what we're getting is positive or negative based on that interpretation. So the very first thing you've got to know is, what kind of testing is being done, and therefore, how do we interpret it? Historically, and this gets into the weeds, but historically, for IgMs, there were three bands that we tested, and if two of them were positive, then you've got a positive IgM. And they're all based on the size of that band, 24, 39, 41 kilodaltons. And then you do an IgG, and there are like 10 of those, and if half of them are positive and they're the right ones then now that's positive too. So I think it really takes some cross-referencing with the New York Heart Association and the Infectious Diseases Society of America guidelines on Lyme disease interpretation. And so if you don't have those readily available and you're in a Lyme endemic area, I'd print them out, put them in your office, make a picture of it in your notes file on your phone and, and make sure you've got those available. But I think in most areas where there's not erythema migrans present, you've got to have some way to confirm testing. Otherwise, you're going to be treating a lot of kids unnecessarily and adults for Lyme disease when you really shouldn't be. 
And just to add that, you know, this is something that exactly how we test, we have these multiple bands and it can be confusing, especially for the patient who has access to their chart and they see, you know, one or two bands pop up as abnormal and they, you know, like, oh, I have Lyme disease. And it's like, no, actually, this doesn't meet the criteria for Lyme disease. Um, and so I think it causes a lot of confusions for, for patients, for interns, um, for attendings that recently moved from Baltimore. Uh, it's really, uh, it's a whole, um, there's no other, I feel like, disease process that we, we diagnose in such a way. I, I, well, there are, but not with the same level of complexity, right? We do this for HIV, uh, historically. We would do a sensitive hmm. test followed by a specific test. We, sure. We've got other models. But yeah, but the bands are bizarre. And, and the real challenge here is that as our laboratory procedures improve and as they become more sophisticated, we're going to have to keep retraining folks. And, and one of the challenges that we've run into is now that our patients sometimes get their lab results well in advance of when I see them because they're getting it in their patient portal, they see red dots by things or they see flags yeah. by things. And now we've got some splaining to do. So in every single patient where we test for Lyme disease, I let them know that there's going to have to be some interpretation that we are uniquely trained to be able to do because inevitably there's going to be some positive findings and we want to make sure that we don't overcall those. So let's say we had, uh, you know, two patients came in, Rick came in at the same time next door, um, his cousin, Anna, whose last name is Plasmosis came in and she, she did not receive treatment. She's now back in your office about a month or two later with a few strange new rashes on her torso, headache, some neck stiffness. Could you tell us a bit about the expected disease progression and what we could see with untreated Lyme disease? She has a misleading name. We don't want to anchor on the name. It's important. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I, yes. Yeah. This is The name was low-hanging fruit. I couldn't let it go. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. It was perfect. But I didn't want to do a full anaplasmosis case. I'm simultaneously proud and disgusted, um, <laughs> which is which is tough, but it's okay. That's, That's what, what we, we go for. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're in a safe space. Like every single episode. Yeah. We do. We're in a safe space. You know, it's interesting. Um, it's important for me to say that there is no chronic form of RMSF or Ehrlichia. You get it and you get better, or you get it and you die. Those are your two options. Lyme disease is fundamentally different. So there is an early localized version of Lyme disease that we know best by having erythema migrans at the site of the infection. There's an early disseminated form that we start to see those flu-like illnesses that we want to be really thoughtful about, and, and they're vague and they're tough. And I think you've got to use confirmatory testing to know where you are. And then I think beyond that, we start to think about the, some of the later findings of Lyme disease, which includes things like carditis, uh, facial palsy. We see evidence of a lymphocytic meningitis uh, where they've got such headache and such photophobia and such neck stiffness that when we tap those kids, uh, we actually can see evidence of a pleocytosis. Protein and glucose are usually pretty normal. Protein can be a little bit high, but the telltale sign is that it's a lymphocytic meningitis. Cultures are obviously negative. Um, you've got to make that diagnosis with serologic testing for Lyme disease. Um, and then the, the challenge of Lyme disease goes on further by having these late complications, which the classic manifestation of late Lyme disease is a, a septic arthritis, 
with pain that is out of proportion to the exam. You've got a big bolotable knee and any orthopedic surgeon who has trained in the Northeast, as soon as that needle comes out or goes in and the fluid comes out, they know what they're dealing with. If they're pulling out absolute pus, 50, 60, 70,000 white cells, yeah, it's probably staph aureus or group A strep, which are the two most common causes of, of septic arthritis. But if they're getting something that's a little more clear, more straw colored, not bloody, but not clear, that's going to be Lyme disease in most of those areas. And again, we confirm that by serologic testing. So I think Lyme is challenging from that standpoint because of that progression from erythema migrans to the 20% that might develop early disseminated disease, which is like multiple rashes, lymphadenopathy, arthralgomyalgias, Bell's palsy, meningitis, and then those, those cardiac manifestations that occur, and then those late disease, which is usually a, an arthritis, especially of the knee. And can you talk about the complications that affect treatment? If there's carditis, if there's arthritis, does that affect the doxycycline treatment? And then if there's Lyme meningitis, does that affect uh, treatment? Well, the nice thing is that doxycycline is always the drug of choice in general. It has good CNS penetration. Again, in general, it has great bone penetration. It's well tolerated. It's just as good orally as it is IV. Uh, the one exception of that would be for pregnant women in which ceftriaxone is typically used and for CNS Lyme disease in which ceftriaxone is, is usually used. And then the length of therapy is often based on an individualization based on response to therapy early on and where they are in their disease course. But, but in general, I think we need to lock in on the fact that it, it's doxycycline in general and, and ceftriaxone is reasonable. One thing for those who have been practicing for a while, there used to be the recommendation that we would use amoxicillin in kids less than eight. And as I mentioned, since there's absolutely no evidence that doxycycline stains the teeth, we took that recommendation away. There's no reason to use amoxicillin, except maybe for the child who has a demonstrated, just clear doxycycline hypersensitivity. That would be a potential reason to use amoxicillin. And in that case, remember that we extend therapy for a week. We give it for three weeks instead of two weeks. Perfect. So we've got someone we're concerned for tick bite. We're concerned for um, Lyme disease specifically. Are there co-infections that we should be concerned about also? There are. Um, one of the more common um, co-infections that we see is with babesiosis. Um, babesiosis is a strange parasite of red blood cells. Uh, it's also limited to the same areas that we think about for Lyme disease. So the Northeast, the upper Midwest, it's happening in the, in the, in the summer months. I think one of the challenges that we run into is that sometimes patients identify co-infections because they've sought alternative complementary medicine techniques that have been sent to specialty labs where they are um, billing themselves as particularly adept at identifying those rare co-infections. And, and I think it's really important for us to, to trust, but verify. And in that situation, what I would do is, is repeat a lot of that testing. We have really good testing for that. I think the places where we would worry about co-infection would principally be in those individuals who are not responding to typical therapy. That would be easy enough. And then number two would have some risk factor that puts them at a unique susceptibility to things like babesiosis. So if they didn't have a spleen, if they had HIV or cancer, 
and receiving chemotherapy, or they had chronic liver kidney disease. That would be some reason to think about babesiosis. Uh, babesiosis can be fairly severe. It can, can lead to a sepsis-like physiology. And we know the, the epidemiology of that. The, the challenge, of course, is that the treatment is extraordinarily different, right? For babesiosis, we're treating it more like a malaria disease where they're getting things like atovaquone and azithromycin or clindamycin plus quinine. So you've really got to have a high index of suspicion in those that are at unique risk and who have um, some unusual features. Thankfully, our labs uh, typically look for that, right? If they see a red cell that has weird inclusions, um, they'll, they'll sometimes see that. We don't see a lot of co-infections with things like Ehrlichia or RMSF, although they can occur. And certainly we see cross-reactivity of those antibodies. So sometimes that can confuse us. Um, so I think in the Northeast, we need to think about that with Lyme and babesiosis. Beyond that, I'm not sure that we have to do it too much. As, and just to clarify, babesiosis in terms of like how common it is, it's on several magnitudes less common than we would see Lyme disease, correct? Unbelievably low. That's exactly right. And so this is where... From an ID standpoint, I'm never going to have babesiosis in my first tier. I'm probably not going to have it in my second tier, quite frankly. I'm going to reserve it for those who have a unique susceptibility and who may not be improving on typical therapy. The med student who's doing the peripheral smear and sees the multi-cross, you're like, oh yeah, babesiosis, right? That's exactly right. I love associations like that. That's exactly right. Go too far down babesiosis, but it also kind of is a malaria mimic. Is that right? Where the, the fever Absolutely. Uh, presentation is very unique. Splenomegaly, hepatomegaly, jaundice. They have flu-like symptoms. They can have DIC. It's not. So I think the only place where you would really be like, wow, what's happening right now is the person that comes in with a little bit more significant of an illness than you think they should. They give you a report of erythema migraines and you're like, could this be Lyme disease? but something else is going on. That's So I think we need to acknowledge that co-infections happen. I think we need to diminish this idea in our patients' minds that the cause for their chronic illness, their chronic fatigue, their chronic fibromyalgia, their, their more chronic symptoms is because of an undiagnosed co-infection. I think that is, is away from goodness in general. And that's one of the reasons why if I were thinking about pearls right now, of Lyme disease or of co-infections, I would say that in general, if we're evaluating someone with a months or years long history of chronic fatigue, of what we might consider fibromyalgia, we need to meet those, those patients' needs. We need to address what the underlying cause is. But I would venture to say that Lyme disease is unlikely or co-infection is highly unlikely to be the cause of that. And I, I don't even think that justifies uh, or warrants evaluation in those patients. Fantastic. Well, I've got one last mini case for you. It's a totally made up scenario, totally made up name. Uh, Chris Chu is planning on going for a few camping trips this coming summer. He is planning to visit us here in Tennessee and then go up to Vermont and then finishing his trip at some of the lakes in Minnesota. He's been listening to some fantastic podcast episodes about tick-borne illnesses, and he's pretty worried. What can we do to prevent ticks what practical advice do you give to families with kids who might be doing some some woodland adventures? And how worried should this totally fictional character, Chris Chu, be of tick-borne illnesses in his family? 
Well, thankfully, we don't have any epidemiologic link between uh, bachelorette parties and tick-borne illnesses. So at least in Nashville, Chris is totally golden. Yeah, Yeah, Nashville's the least of his worries. You know, I think the first thing is to say, am I going to be in an area where tick exposure is likely? There's a famous study out of Tennessee where they looked at an outbreak of religiosis among golfers at a local resort in Middle Tennessee. And it turns out men were far more likely than women to get Ehrlichia. And it was stratified in terms of risk based on how their hand, what their handicap was. So for those who shot very poorly and were males, they shot their balls into the woods and by gosh, they're going to find amazing. They're going to find them. I haven't lost my ball yet. And so I, I have still can find it. It's, I mean, it was, um, so it's time spent uh. in tick exposed areas. So the first thing is if you're going to go to downtown Nashville, you're good to go. If you're going to go hiking at one of our beautiful uh, lakes or rivers, you might want to spray some DEET and you might want to even treat your clothes with permethrin, whether that's boots or camping gear or whatever, because those will remain protective through multiple washings. DEET is remarkably effective. We recognize that there are some families who may not wish to use DEET. A keratin is, is an option, oil of lemon, eucalyptus. Um, there are others that can be used There are some that we know that aren't as effective, like things like citronella, not as effective. Bounce dryer sheets, turns out, not as effective, but might be effective at preventing mosquitoes. And so the biggest thing to do is is try to to know where you're going, use DEET or uh, permethrin or picaridin as you go. And then no matter what you do, you're not going to do it perfectly. So shower after you've been in those high-risk areas, because then you can do a tick check. And you look at the edge of the hair, if you've still got it, you look in armpits and in folds of the skin, and you simply try to figure out if you've got any, and then you wash your clothes. Ticks love to hang out in pockets and in clothes and in socks and in shoes. And so you just make sure you shake them out as best you can. And then the final thing, I think, if you're going to go to endemic areas where you're going to be for a while, like you're camping, I think you've really got to be mindful about how to take away a tick. Um, how to best remove a tick once it's bitten you. I think most of us have experienced this in our lifetimes. And so having a set of tweezers on hand when you're camping is much more effective than taking a hot ember from uh, the, the campfire. And so pulling with very gentle pressure so that you get all of the tick is a really important skill to learn. Plenty of videos that you can watch on proper tick removal technique. I think that's really important. So don't squeeze it between your fingers really hard until it bursts like some of my patients no, have told because, me. No, because then it vomits <laughs> all of its goodness right into you, and that's utterly disgusting. Second thing I would say, okay, this is really – this is maybe this is a pearl that we want to think about. You know, two things happen when a pit bites you. Uh, they take a blood meal, but then the second thing is that they're introducing the staph and the strep and the other stuff that's on your skin into those deeper structures of the skin. So remember that that tick bites can do a couple of things. They can transmit things, but they can also provide a portal of entry for those things that normally live on your skin. So don't sleep on staph or strep being the cause of inflammation at the site of a previous tick bite. And similarly, don't think that any inflammation at the site of a tick bite has to be a rickettsial disease, Lyme disease, or bacterial infection. It may just be the hypersensitivity that comes from a tick biting you. These great, great pearls. And I think uh, I'm never going to let a golfer, adult patient that has Ehrlichia, that has uh, any tick-borne illness away with it. You have been so generous with your time. Maybe we can wrap up and let me ask, um, 
key takeaway points? You know, what are things that you want listeners to, to walk away from and anything that you want to plug that we should try to send our listeners to, to check out? Yeah. So um, from my standpoint, the biggest thing to remember is that if you're in the summertime in an area that has traditional rickettsial diseases like Ehrlichia and RMSF, um, really lock in fever and photophobia and headache with those laboratory features of lymphopenia and thrombocytopenia and hyponatremia as cardinal features of, of these tick-borne illnesses for which doxycycline is the drug of choice. Second, geographic distribution of these illnesses is critically important, and there's a good amount of overlap, especially in our mid-Atlantic states. So not just where you are, but where your patient has been will dictate the types of diseases that you think about. Lyme disease in the Northeast, Upper Midwest, the Atlantic Seaboard, and then rickettsial diseases in the Southeast, Midwest, and moving towards the Rockies. Third would be this idea that um, treatment is, is important for anyone that you clinically suspect to have a tick-borne illness. You do not need and you should not wait for laboratory confirmation of those infections. The last one is that, you know, the best way to prevent a tick-borne illness is to prevent a tick bite in the first place. And there are ways to do that, including DEET and permethrin and Picardin and other ways um, that we can try to avoid the tick bite in, in, in the outset. And anything we should have our listeners check out? Anything to plug? Yeah. So a couple of things that I would highlight for you. First off is that the Infectious Diseases Society of America often have updates to particularly the Lyme disease treatment guidelines. So these clinical practice guidelines are, are well um, vetted um, using a standard uh, PICO and, and grade approach to be able to acknowledge that there are unmet medical needs and we want to be able to address our, our patients' needs as best we can, but with evidence base. And so for Lyme disease in particular, heading over to idsociety.org is a good way to, to have those guidelines on hand. And then I would always encourage folks to, to stay on top of, of the CDC's website that gives updated epidemiologic information about where we are with each one of these, keeping in mind that the reporting of most of these illnesses is below what reality is just because they're so hard to diagnose. Any other podcasts to, to shoot our listeners, send our listeners to? Well, okay. That's That's a good plug right there. Um, so I <laughs> recently uh, working with Paul Sachs and Maddie Davis in St. Louis began to work with the ID Society of America on Let's Talk ID. It's available wherever you listen to your podcasts. We usually have new episodes drop every Saturday. We'd love for you to check us out, especially if you have some interest in ID. We cover things from training to mentorship to interesting pearls within ID. And I think it would be pretty simpatico with what we're doing here. Amazing. Thank you so much for your time, your expertise, your generosity. What a great episode. Very high yield. Lots of um, thank you for your time. And thanks for joining us at the Dripsiders. Appreciate you guys. The number you have dialed has been changed. The new number is... This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes and sign up for our weekly Knowledge Food Formula Feeds newsletter on our website at www.goodness. <laughs> <laughs> at www.goodness. <laughs> 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 Keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going.
We're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or any of your favorite podcast players, or send us an email at thecroopsetters at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. A special thanks to our producers for this episode, Dr. Ryan Hansen and Dr. Brian Ward, our showrunner, Dr. Sam Mazur, and our wonderful social media team on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for joining. I've been Justin Lee Burke. I've been Brian Ward. I've been Ryan Hansen. And this has been Chris the Chew Man Chew. And now for those who've made it all the way to the end, here's a gift, another poem written by AI. In fields of green where children stray, a lurking tick, they cross their way. Lime's whispers come in signs so clear, pediatricians see and hear. A rash that spreads a bullseye mark, a sign that lights the diagnostic spark. Joint pains that wander come and go, fatigue like streams in steady flow. Neurologic signs, subtle, profound, in whispers, not in thunderous sound. A memory fades, a muscle twitches. In Lyme's dark game, there are no glitches. Armed with doxycycline, a trusted sword, against this foe, a silent accord. With every pill, a hope rekindled. In their care, the illness dwindled. So in this battle, unseen, unheard, pediatricians heed without a word. In every healed child, a story untold of courage, care. A heart so bold. Have a good one, guys. So good. Beautiful. That was so much longer than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Just kept going. <laughs> <laughs>